Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there, whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, March 27th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, and this week we're dealing with one of the most phenotypically dichotomous species you ever will see. It's the Mexican tetra. Nice. We've got two great guests, Dr. Patty Ornelas and Dr. Andy Glusenkamp. Patty's an amazing scientist. She's a researcher with the Universidad Nacional Autonoma de Mexico. <laughs> and Andy is a Mexican tetra enthusiast at the San Antonio Zoo. We're looking forward to getting to know the real basics about this fish and also really digging into the details and the larger context of how it fits in with some of the other fishes that we've talked about. So very warm welcome to both of you. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I was hoping one or both of you could help describe what exactly this fish looks like. And I know there's two forms. Yeah, for sure. So the Mexican tetra, it's amazing because it is very widely distributed. And what we are also interested is in the differences between the cave forms and the surface forms because they evolve with different characteristics associated with the caves. Some of the most important differences are related with the absence of the eyes. Mm -hmm. They are completely blind. And we have a gradient in different caves where we can find some with small eyes and others completely lost. So it's very, very interesting that you have this diversity inside of the caves. And we have also differences in the pigmentation. The fish from the caves are completely albino, but also you have some characteristics in the body shape that makes them unique. In contrast with the surface, they are a little bit more fat or (laughs) yeah, and they are also very, very, very interesting because the head is a little bit like a dog uh, head. It's uh, flattened at the most anterior part. And that is the result of the orbit collapsing. Once Mm. that you lost the eye, the orbit collapses and makes this a special uh, shape in the head. So it's one of the most interesting characteristics in the morphology of the cave fish in contrast with the surface. And the surface ones look like? The surface ones is very like the typical fish. It's like a sardine and are really platy. Uh, the silver is the, the color that we, we have for them. And these guys are pretty little, right? This is a tetra, so small. Yeah, yeah. in, in general terms, I will say that the, the maximum size that I have collected them is like 12 centimeters. Yeah, maybe around four inches or something like that. Yeah. Perfect. I'm curious what the feeding ecology is like, if it differs between surface and subsurface populations. Mm -hmm. These fish are omnivorous. That means that they eat everything. And it's very, very interesting because the first time that I was in Chica, where is a very large bat colony there, I observed a bat falling to the pool and the fish came and started eating the bat. And actually, in Tinaja, other population, we observe a cricket, again, falling in the pool and the fish start eating dramatically. Do they swarm? Are they like piranhas in that (laughs) respect? (laughs) Actually, yeah, it's very, very interesting because they are really voracious in terms of ones that you put your feet inside of the in the river or the lake. They start biting your your feet. Oh, it's very, it's cool, actually. Yeah, (laughs) sounds cool. 
I must admit that in in some cases I I start getting upset about they trying to bite all the time. So yeah, yeah they can be very voracious. <laughs> Both surface fish and cave fish love to eat bat guano. Mm-hmm. And it's likely a very important part of the diet, not just for cave fish that are fortunate to be in an area with the bat roost, but for the fish that occupy the springs or the resurgence. And we see that with a lot of cave fish. We don't see that with very many surface fish. So once again, Asianics as a surface fish kind of has some things going for it already in terms of being a good candidate for colonizing the subterranean. Where is the source of the nutrients that the bats are feeding on coming from? It's usually several thousand feet above the ground. So higher than jetliners fly, we have big swarms of moths and other flying insects that migrate to agricultural fields, both in the U.S. and in Mexico. And so bats are a really, really important first line of defense against pests on our agricultural crops. So all that protein that they're keeping from impacting all of our protein winds up being excreted on the way or in a cave. I just think it's really interesting to think about the flow of nutrients. So whatever those moths are feeding on, that's essential for the bats, which is then essential for the tetras. It goes all the way back to wherever those bugs are coming from. And it's critical in our ability to identify that that's what's going on. Any one of us could track this path. All you got to do is take a cave fish or a cave salamander, put it in a cup for a minute, and let it poop. <laughs> if it's eating backwano, it's going to poop out moth scales. You know the chain. That's huh. awesome. That's Amazing. wild that the scales don't get digested at any point and they all they come out <laughs> the other end of the fish. That's wild. In fact, that's how you identify fossil guano deposits because the scales make it look like it, ah. it was glitter bombed. It's ah, fascinating. I, I don't know what else we could talk about. That's amazing. <laughs> so the guys without eyes, how are they sensing the food? Are they just hearing it plop? Or? Mm, yeah, <laughs> there is a, a behavior that it's called vibration attraction behavior that they actually sense the vibration in the water. So if they sense the cricket moving into the surface of the water, they are coming to, to eat it. In another important thing that has been described in the cave fish is the odor capacity. They have an incremented odor capacity to recognize very small particles of whatever nutrient you have dissolved in the water, and they can immediately identify. Perfect. And then are there any other names by which people might know this fish other than Mexican tetra? Yeah, we have different names for the cave fish. We call it sardinita ciega which means blind sardine and in Mexico. And also the surface fish, we call it the pesca. And it's also very typical or commonly used this name in the Central America. Okay. Funny, literally like right after we did our pre-call about this fish, I was on Twitter um, and a post came up and a fish guy pointed out that Astyonix was the name of Hector's baby that Odysseus like yeeted over the walls of Troy. With cave organisms, biologists really like to pull into the mythological names because there are so many great stories involved the underworld. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we had 
Dean Hendrickson on last year to talk about Satan, the blind yep. catfishes. That's uh-huh. over kind of your neck of the woods, Andy. So that, that's a good example. Mm-hmm. Now, there's lots of ways to group fishes phylogenetically by feeding or reproductive gills, whether they're targeted by anglers, for instance. But here on this show, our goal is to highlight the diversity of fishes that inhabit the freshwater of the United States. And so that's the framework that I use to think about potential fishes that we're going to bring on the show. And so some of the reasons that I thought that the Mexican tetra would be a really good species to cover is that it belongs to this really big and diverse and important order of the and family of fishes, the Carassiformes. And that these fishes, though, they're restricted mainly to parts of Africa and South and Central America. But the the Mexican tetra represents the only species that's native to the waters of the United States. And because of that, it's often not really considered too well by the North American fish enthusiasts. That is, except for those in the aquarium trade where this species really does have its fans. And some Mm -hmm. of those have even introduced it to other parts of the U.S. where it's kind of now invasive. Now, all Mm -hmm. these traits are shared with another fish that lives right next door in my mind. That's one that we get, were able to cover last year. Do you guys have any guesses for what this fish is? No. I know. I, well, Katrina <laughs> knows. It's the Texas cichlid. <laughs> and so I, I, I think cichlid. both okay, of okay. those are really cool for all those reasons. And obviously this awesome. one has many more that we're really looking forward to digging into. I'm a little curious. Where do the tetras fall phylogenetically within this kind of larger order of carassiform fishes? Mm-hmm. We have a, a very interesting phylogeny in Carassiforms because Astyanax, the genus, is like uh, this trash genus that we used to call in phylogeny, where you put several genus that are actually not monophyletic in the same one, no? So it's interesting because we have Ifesobricon and Bricon Americus as the one most related with the Astyanax genus. But interestingly, the Bramocarax that was originally described as a different genera and they were together using molecular data with Astyanax. So nowadays there is a lot of controversies regarding the the monophily of Astyanax. And there are the most recent studies that have included fishes from South America. Basically, one of the most famous Astyanax species is Astyanax fasciatus. And they realized that maybe could be actually a different genus. So yeah, Astyanax, it's not monophyletic. We have uh, that problem in the taxonomy of the genus, and we are trying to solve that with the phylogenetic analysis. I think it's really cool. You can kind of look at a fish and it just looks like a fish, but there's actually like a really neat history and ancestry. Could you tell us just a little bit about what's being uncovered, I guess, about the cave fish form, the surface form, like what started first, kind of how are they related and what do we know about them and what do we still need to know? Okay, so this is very interesting because we have the Astyanax genus from a South American origin. So all of the distribution in Central America and North America is due to this expansion in its distribution thanks to dispersion. So what we know is actually the ancestral form is the surface. And okay. at least in nowadays, we know 34 cave populations of Astyanax, which is huge. It's a lot of populations. And one of the very interesting things that we have been uncovering thanks to the phylogenies is that these fishes have evolved from independent uh, surface lineages, at least from two different lineages, which makes them very, very interesting because 
it's really like a repeated evolution that is happening within this genus. Mm -hmm. And we exactly are questioning why is this genus so prompt to adapt to these cave environments? How fast are they evolving? And I guess, how are they getting into these caves? I'm sure there's mm -hmm. some kind of process you guys can help us understand that they're entering from the surface to underground. The molecular data helps to resolve this question because at the beginning we thought that we're very, very ancient, um, around one million years ago. But with the new genomic data, what we know is that it's very, very fast. Mm -hmm. Maybe from the last um, glacial maximum, we have these populations like uh, 120,000 years. So it's very, very quick. And as far as how do surface fish enter the subterranean environment and then not only survive, but thrive. In that region of Mexico, where the cave populations are known, they have really pronounced seasons between dry and wet seasons. And so seasonal river flooding brings tens or hundreds of thousands of individual subsurface fish into the cave environment. The vast majority perish, but certainly <laughs> not all. <laughs> because we have many examples of cave populations that were established by that mechanism. In other cases, I'm thinking of Tinaja where, um, or Cueva Chica, where at the upper levels of the caves, those pools actually have cave fish. And as you mm -hmm. descend deeper and further into the system, you find the pools have surface fish. Huh. It's kind of unexpected, but that cave actually receives flood water from a nearby river through a deeper conduit. And so surface mm -hmm. fish are colonizing the cave from the bottom end. So it's mm -hmm. really site-specific. But suffice to say, Asianics love rivers. They also love lakes under certain conditions. But almost everywhere they occur, they love the twilight zone. Mm -hmm. What are these cave systems like? Are people able to access them for you guys to go down and do your research? Or are they closed off? We know of the ones that we can access and get into, and we know of some that we can't access or that we can't get into, but it's a huge, complicated area in terms of geography mm. and geology. So it's that the best answer is we know that we know very, very little. So it all starts with somebody literally willing to crawl in a hole and mm -hmm. see what's down there. Mm -hmm. That's cool. In the Labra region, you have more than 200 caves. And at least in this region, 32 have Astianax, which is a very important number of caves. But in terms of the proportion, is very little. And most of the caves are very, very complicated to get down. We have caves like with more than 300 meters down to get oh. access to the pools of where we find the Astianax. And maybe like... 10, you need a special equipment to get into the cave and get access to the pools. Do you actually yes. like go down them and get in them? Okay. Yeah. 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 The first one for me, the most difficult was 200 meters down. Hmm. And I recall going outside just because of the adrenaline, because I was so tired after going down, but the <laughs> adrenaline makes you go up. Yeah. <laughs> to the surface. <laughs> but yeah, it's a magic environment. I must admit that it's very, very special. Once that you are down, it's incredible how lives persist in these conditions. Andy, how about you? Uh, my favorites are the ones I remember. <laughs> I uh, was very fortunate to be involved in an expedition where the effort was to collect every cave scorpion known cool. from Mexico mm. in two weeks. Oh. Uh, nonetheless, yes, I've been in these caves, and Patty's absolutely right. 
they're magnificent. Most of them are profoundly vertical. And then others, they're seasonally accessible and mm -hmm. um, just violent rivers or the atmosphere due to bat colonies is just inhospitable for humans. So yeah. doing the work in the field where the fish live is extremely difficult. It's very fortunate that this fish is amenable to captive husbandry, that most of the work that researchers do is in the laboratories. What does an F1 offspring of a blind cave form and a surface dwelling form look like? Mm. Do you have one with like pigmentation, but no eyes or vice versa or anything like that? Yes. You have all the gradient in the hybrid populations. You have fish with pigments, but not eyes. With eyes, but not pigment. And cool. all the combinations. <laughs> yeah, it's That's cool. So this is a very dynamic kind of environment where, yeah, these fish can be very quickly moved from the surface to a cave, so it seems like that would help from a survival standpoint over time to be able to have that plasticity. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a very interesting question that we are um, in several labs trying to access because it's like how fast the surface fish can adapt to these new conditions mm -hmm. and which could be the most important selective pressures, right? Like it's feeding, it's the metabolism or it's uh, in general behavior that it's ruling the adaptation in this environment. I see Andy bouncing around in his chair. You got something to add, Andy? <laughs> Uh, she's singing my favorites. We're actually studying some of those things now in a small way with mm -hmm. non-native populations here in central Texas. They've been introduced here since the early 1900s. And you're in the Edwards Plateau, right? Yeah, Edwards Escarpment and the Edwards Aquifer, where it's exposed along the eastern edge of the Edwards Plateau. And these fish thrive here in these extra-limital sites because we have springs and caves with streams and rivers are fed by springs that have a constant temperature of 67 to 70 degrees. So mm -hmm. fish that were placed here will thrive. But at the same time, we have a date for the earliest potential colonization of some of these cave and spring systems. And so we can compare populations from those sites to their siblings on the surface and start to try to tease apart what some of those first steps were mm -hmm. by looking at the very small shifts in the cave populations relative to their surface neighbors in less than a century. Dang, that is fast. So I got to ask, what is the San Antonio Zoo's interest in this fish? One of the primary headwater ranges of the San Antonio River originates on zoo grounds. In 1908, fish were introduced in nearby San Pedro Springs, and that was the first year that species was identified in the San Antonio River system on zoo grounds. And there are still descendants from that original introduction back in 1908. So fast forward just over a century, when the Center for Conservation Research was established at San Antonio Zoo, and my supervisor and I, Dante Bernolia, we're both cave biologists by nature. So this is a low-hanging fruit and easy opportunity for me to explore important evolutionary questions about mm -hmm. cave organisms right in my backyard. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Are these fish facing any threats across their native range? Um, or are certain, I guess, subpopulations or morphs doing better than others? 
You know, in Mexico, all the northern part, it's in a desertification process. Every year is drier and drier and drier. And this is one of the most threatening parts for this species linked with the climatic change. And what we are observing is that people is pumping out water from these cave populations, like for human consume, human agriculture, or different human uses in general. And the other threat is that actually we are nowadays knowing better about the size of these populations. Like we need to be aware the impact that we are producing when we are sampling these kind of fishes. And those issues that Patty mentioned about direct human impacts to cavefish habitat, namely direct removal of water, those are acute. They're dramatic. They're very easy to see with the naked eye, uh, but they're mm -hmm. not unique. We have precisely the same issues in San Antonio. It's simply a matter of scale. And the steps necessary to mitigate that are the same as well. One, education both locally and afar, providing other opportunities for people to meet their water needs, and then decreasing researcher impact. And, and she's speaking about these really small, fragile populations where the people studying them because they care could potentially impact them. The response to that threat is that the entire cavefish community has come together voluntarily to develop best practices, to share data broadly, and to minimize individual trips into the field That's awesome. so that we literally have fewer boots in the mud. Yeah. <laughs> That first point reminds me a lot of the devil's hole pup fishes and those guys down yeah. in the Southwest as well. And that's, you know, notable conservation issue in the last century. I'm curious, these population sizes, how big are we talking? The cave populations are smaller than we at the beginning expected. The last studies trying to estimate the population sizes in the caves, they suggest that the number are less than a thousand fish in a cave. Mm -hmm. So imagine in... 10 years, maybe you can extract more than 200 fish from this cave. So you are extracting 20% of the population in a decade. So maybe in three or, or four decades, the population is no longer. And in the contrary, uh, the surface fish are huge. There are so many standing variations in the population that can maybe overcome some of the first selective pressures in the caves. So it's very, very interesting. So it doesn't really matter how many there are if they're mm -hmm. only found in that one place. Mm -hmm. And that's what's really important. It's almost irrelevant how many there are because a single catastrophe could take out all of them. So when we're thinking about a fish like this, we always kind of like to think about different reasons people can care. And I mean, aquarium species, they're really cool. They're beautiful fish. What, if anything, is the biomedical kind of interest in these fish? So this fish was very famous in Mexico because there was an experiment when they make a injury in the hearts of the fish and the surface fish can regenerate all the, the heart after this injury. Dang. But the cave fish cannot regenerate. So what they do is make a collagen uh, scar that is very similar what happens in the humans when we have a heart attack. So the idea is that they compare the genes that are expressing in the surface that they can regenerate the heart and the ones that 
that are not expressing in the cavefish. Mm -hmm. So they identify at least six different candidate genes that can be modulating this regeneration in the heart. And the other one is maybe one of the most important is that they are insulin resistant. So there is very interesting uh, conditions associated with this because people that is resistant to insulin, they have several organs damages. And apparently in the Astyanax, we don't have that. So they are trying to further investigate what is happening. That's amazing. The list goes on and on. So mm -hmm. Graham Proudlove, who maintains a bibliography of cave fish data, recently did a, an analysis and he found that fully something like 18% of all cave fish literature is astyanics literature. And that's driven by the biomedical and the evolutionary research being done on it. That's cool. What a cool fish from like, yeah, biomedical and evolutionarily where you can study it as this model system. Like that's like a, it's really neat. This yeah. fish has everything going for it. It's beautiful on the surface. They're fascinating underground. They're of conservation priority. They're mm -hmm. a challenge for researchers and explorers to engage with, and they might help humans. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what attracted both of you to working with cave fish and to cave this Mexican fish. tetra? Oh, that is a very nice question. <laughs> I I must admit that for me at the beginning was more the phylogenetic history. I recall presenting my first studies of phylogeny of Astyanax to a Astyanax cave community. And I realized that a lot of the interpretations that they were doing they were separated from the phylogeny. And in my opinion, that was very, very important because in some cases, some of the variations could be due to the history and some because of the cave. And knowing the difference could be very important in terms of interpreting what is adaptive and what was not. And in that case, for me, I start checking some caves. And once that I get into a cave, I completely fell in love of the environment. And actually the cavefish are really, really amazing organisms. How about you, Andy? Yeah, I had a similar experience, although in different order. So for me, reptiles, amphibians, I've uh, been a lifelong passion. Then I led down a path of phylogenetic systematics and morphology and amphibians, which eventually led to me studying cave salamanders when I discovered caving. And my experiences looking at cave salamanders in that context really set me up to love cave fish. Mm -hmm. And when I started to encounter cave fish in the caves where I was working, questions started to come to mind. And lucky for me, they took a relative outsider like me and brought me into the fold where I'm able to contribute this sort of outsider art to the discussion. If you had to say one more thing about these tetras that you'd like folks to take home, what would it be? I'd like to think that some of the people that have captive astyanics at home, pet trade fish, that they could sit and look at those fish in the aquarium and think about the history of those lineages, where they've been and what they're doing and, and what we're going to learn about them in the future. So it's kind of like having a an action figure of your favorite <laughs> superhero to have one of these guys at home, as far as I'm concerned. And yes, I do have some at home. I'm going to go buy one today after this. <laughs> okay. So get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the Mexican Tetra. And if you like this episode, be sure to check out our Blind Cats and Texas Cichlid episodes as well. And bats are cool. 
Thank you guys so much. Thank here. you so much okay. for the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank for you. The you guys did yes. great. Yeah. Very oh, people job. care about the species that we love so much. So that's heartwarming. for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.